Okay, uh, welcome and good morning to everyone. Um, we are continuing on with our church history series, again, focusing on religious developments in the new world. Uh, primarily, you know, our goal is eventually to um, focus on the United States as it emerges as a nation and the religious influences um, that uh, came into being and continued continue to this day. All right, so today we're gonna to talk about 17th century Christianity in British colonial America. And we're gonna just stay in the 17th century, the 1600s. So uh, we're just gonna focus on some highlights of developments in this century. I don't know how well you can see that map. It's a little dark. Um, it's an old map. But basically what you have here is mostly North America. It also pictures South, uh, rather a little bit of South America and, and then all of, some of Central America. And um, the darker, well, let's say the, the yellowish or orange, I'm not sure that isn't coming through real well. This was the best map I could find. <laughs> So my apologies, but the uh, yellow or orange shaded portion, this is where Spain has uh, set up colonies. And if you remember when we talked about the Spanish conquest of the new world, Spain was doing two things, uh, forming colonies that would extract natural resources from the new world and send, primarily they were looking for gold and silver and sending that back to Spain to enrich Spain. They were also uh, forming colonies, villages, cities, um, and there was a major push um, by the Roman Catholic Church to extend the church in these areas and primarily the Spanish were doing that through the Jesuits who were um, basically in charge of converting the indigenous people and essentially making them into Spaniards. Um, so by 1600, however, uh, the British and the French were very active in North America and on the map, uh, the portion that's dark solid shaded in North America, you can see it around the Great Lakes and up into Canada, that's uh, the primary portion of the new world that France was active in. Now, the French did not intend to found permanent colonies. They were simply there for resource extraction. And because they were not focused on, you know, settling these areas in any permanent sense, they uh, worked very well and collaborated with the indigenous peoples. But again, the French were really after resource extraction, primarily in terms of animal pelts that they could send back to Europe and sell and make a lot of money. Um, the British were also active uh, in that area in Canada that's shaded dark and light. Um, the French and the British were active in that area and the British were uh, forming permanent intending to form, I should say, permanent settlements on the, on the eastern seaboard of what is now the United States. So I guess by 1600, you could say that British colonization had, I say on the outline, had penetrated. Let's really, 
they had begun to penetrate the eastern half of what would become the US and Canada, and Spain had taken Central America, the western portions of South America and the Caribbean, and the Portuguese, which they're not pictured on this map, uh, they had established their colonies in South America in what would become Brazil. Now, on December 6th, 1606, 104 English men and boys arrived in North America to start a settlement. They were 14 years ahead of the Puritans. Remember, we had talked about the Puritans. They'd gone from England to the Netherlands and then from the Netherlands to the New World. Uh, but this group was 14 years ahead of the Puritans who would leave their exile in the Netherlands to establish a North American settlement in 1620. The journey to Virginia began on three ships, the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery. Arriving on May 13, 1607, they chose Jamestown, Virginia for their settlement, which was named after their king, James I. Now again, keep in mind, this is James I of England. He's also James VI of Scotland. He's the king of England, and he's also the king under which the King James Bible was produced. So that's this time period. The settlement became the first permanent English settlement in North America. The purpose of the Virginia settlement was not religious. The Virginia Company had been given a charter by King James I of England to establish a settlement and colonize the eastern coast of what is now the United States. And although the purpose of the colony was primarily economic, to exploit the rich natural resources of the land and grow crops to be sold throughout the world markets, the settlers brought with them their English traditions and customs and their religion. Most of the Jamestown colonists were members of the Church of England, or Anglican, and this helped establish Virginia as a primarily Anglican or Episcopal, as it became known in North America, colony. On July 30, 1619, newly appointed Governor Yardley called for the first representative legislative assembly. This marked the beginning of representative government in North America. Uh, but remember, 1619 is also the year in which the first documented enslaved Africans were brought to North America. By this point, European colonists had been importing African slaves into the Caribbean, Central, and South America for work in sugar plantations and, and coffee plantations and many other types for more than 100 years. British colonists found that tobacco grew very well in Virginia and imported <laughs> African slaves to perform the very labor-intensive work needed to grow tobacco. Some of the first Africans that were brought to the British North American colonies were technically indentured servants, uh, but indentured servants were eventually freed. So an indentured servant, if you don't know what that is, this is a person who has basically said, I will labor for X number of years, for a lot of them it was seven years. Uh, they would basically contract with a wealthy person and say, I will work for you on your plantation for seven years to work off the cost of you uh, footing the bill for my passage to the new world. So these wealthy individuals who are forming these plantations 
uh, they would essentially cover the cost of people coming to the new world who couldn't afford it for themselves. And these people were indentured servants. They had a certain period of time where they had to work and essentially their lives were not that much different than the slaves. However, they, there would be an end to their servitude. Um, but the problem with this system, uh, you know, again, especially from the point of view of the planters, uh, the people who are, you know, coming up with the resources to establish these plantations, when you have indentured servants, you have essentially a slave for seven years, but then after that, they're, they're gone, and now you have to replace that worker. And also, indentured servants meant additional competition for land in the new world, because these people would then want to acquire land and establish their own farm. Also in 1619, the Virginia Company recruited and shipped over about 90 women to become wives and start families in Virginia, something needed to establish a permanent colony. So the colonists had started off, you know, it was just men. But if you're gonna have a permanent colony, you must have families. Um, life in the New World, life, life anywhere on the globe in, in 1619 was difficult and short and you know, problematic for everyone, pretty much. Um, but you know, coming to a brand new country, there's literally no human civilization to speak of. There are indigenous people who have set up their own villages in some cases, but not all. Not all indigenous groups uh, formed villages. Uh, many of them were still essentially hunter-gatherers. So you're coming to a world where you have to make everything yourself. It's daunting. Um, but eventually women came, families were formed. Although the Powhatan tribe of Virginia killed many settlers in 1622, the colonies survived and grew. And by 1699, there were about 60,000 people in the Virginia colony, including about 6,000 African slaves. The social structure of Virginia evolved along the lines of British society with increasing stratification. As time went on, original, original settlers had snatched up all the quality land and new settlers were finding less opportunity to own land and have their own farms. This resulted in a small class of rich landowners and a large class of landless laborers and small farmers. And although there was no official aristocracy in the colony, as there was in Britain, the second sons of British aristocrats often came to America to make their fortune. Virginia was a favorite place for these men. So in the British system, you know, if you were an aristocrat and you had a bunch of kids, the first son would inherit everything when you died. The rest of the kids, good luck. <laughs> And obviously the new world, you know, despite the hardships and the difficulties, looks to be an opportune place if you're some, you know, a lot of these younger sons of noblemen in England, they had some resources, um, uh, but they saw the new world, many of them, as a place for greater opportunity. The Church of England grew slowly throughout the colonies along the East Coast. 
The Church of England was the established church in Virginia by 1609. Note I'm saying established church. So this is a colony, what is it run by? It's run by a group of British men and they establish a church. So if, if you live in this colony, you must go, the only church that's there for you is the Church of England. They have established that this is the church in this area. No religious freedom yet. The lower four counties of New York by 1693, Maryland in 1702, and we'll talk more about Maryland later, South Carolina in 1706, North Carolina in 1730, and Georgia in 1758. This is starting to look like Britain all over again, an established church. These British people are just reproducing what there was in England. But by 1700, the Church of England's greatest strength was in Virginia and Maryland. The editors of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer back in England found that they had to address the spiritual concerns of the contemporary adventurer. So they inserted this paragraph in their preface, that it was thought convenient that some prayers and thanksgivings fitted to special occasions should be added in their due places, particularly for those at sea, together with an office for the baptism of such as are of riper years, which although not so necessary when the former book was compiled is now becoming necessary and may, may be always useful for the baptizing of natives in our plantations and others converted to the faith. So the church was beginning to recognize this colonizing activity, you know, it's not gonna stop, it's just going to increase. And as the Church of England spreads throughout the new world, we need to account for the fact that there are gonna be people coming into the church as adults um, you know, we're not just going to be baptizing infants anymore. In 1649, the English Parliament granted a charter to found a missionary organization called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England, or the New England Society for short. After 1702, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts began missionary activity throughout the colonies. Where the Church of England was established, parishes received financial support from local taxes. Again, very different from what we have today. So people who lived in these areas, the only religion, the official religion was Church of England and some of your tax money would go to support the church. And with these funds, vestries controlled by local elites were able to build and operate churches. So uh, think of a vestry as simply a board of elders. Uh, you know, in other churches, it, these groups have different names, but it's essentially a group of men who are running the church. The vestries also became involved with relief for the poor, road maintenance, and other civic and judicial functions. Uh, but the ministers were few, the salaries inadequate, many of the people were quite uninterested in religion. So the vestry became, in effect, a kind of local government. You know, if you're a settler in the New World, what are your primary concerns? Avoiding sickness, you know, trying to clear the land, try to plant crops, 
try to keep the native in, uh, peoples from killing your livestock if you had any, and so on. Um, religion is not really top of mind for, for your, uh, you know, your situation. For several decades, the system worked in a somewhat democratic fashion, but by the 1660s, the vestries had generally become self-perpetuating units made up of well-to-do landowners. Small farmers, servants, and those without much social standing came to resent the power of the vestries. From 1635, the vestries and the clergy were loosely under the diocesan authority of the Bishop of London. So again, if this is this uh, a transplant of Church of England, you know, that means England is ultimately the controlling authority. In 1660, the clergy of Virginia petitioned, petitioned for a bishop to be appointed to the colony. They wanted out from under the power of the vestries. The proposal, of course, was vigorously opposed by powerful vestrymen, most of whom were wealthy planters who foresaw their interests being curtailed. Various bishops of London proposed the appointment of a bishop for Virginia, but none were ever appointed. The SPG, with the support of the Bishop of London, wanted a bishop for the colonies, but strong opposition arose in the South where a bishop with threatened the privileges of the lay vestry. Opponents conjured up visions of Episcopal palaces or pontifical revenues of spiritual courts and all the pomp, grandeur, luxury, and regalia of an American Lambeth. Okay, so this is a reference to Lambeth Palace in London, and this is the main residence of the head of the Church of England. Okay, so the head of the Church of England is called the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he has a big organization in Canterbury, but he's got a palace in London. Well, of course, it's the, you know, the nation's capital. And it's still there to this day. Here's a picture of it. Interestingly, you can rent out parts of it for social events <laughs> if you have the money. <laughs> Again, <laughs> You know, in, 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 Britain, in Britain today, all these great houses of the nobility have to, you have to pay for them somehow. The nobility has lost most of its, you know, a lot of its wealth that it used to have centuries ago. So a lot of these castles and palaces, they have to pay their own way. They become tourist destinations. You know, uh, if you ever watch the show Downton Abbey, uh, you know, you can actually go to High Clare Castle, which is where Downton Abbey was filmed, and you can stay the night. I think it costs about a thousand bucks a night, but there's luxury hotels all over Europe that cost more. So um, you, can, you can tour Lambeth Palace if you end up in London. Might be fun. Anyway, the, the American colonists certainly were not interested in a Lambeth Palace you know, a bishop, and, and, and the other part of it too is, what, what kinds of resources would it take to support a bishop? A lot. You know, they don't really have it. According to Pat Patricia Bonami, uh, who wrote a book called Under the Cope of Heaven, Religion, Society, and Politics in Colonial America, uh, she quotes John Adams, who claimed that the apprehension, the fear of episcopacy, contributed as much as any other cause to the American Revolution. 
capturing the attention not only of the inquiring mind, but of the common people. The objection was not merely to the office of, of a bishop, though even that was dreaded, but to the authority of parliament on which it must be founded. Because again, remember, in England, church and state are fused. They are like this, oops, sorry. They are like this. They are, they are just embedded in each other. And from really on, honestly, probably from the beginning, if these colonists had been uh, truly honest, they would have said, yeah, we're here and we're under a British flag for now, but that's gonna change. The Church of England in America embraced the symbols of the British presence in the American colonies, such as the monarchy, the episcopate, and even the language of the Book of Common Prayer. Anglican leaders on both sides of the Atlantic realized, in the words of William Smith's 1762 report to the Bishop of London, that the church is the firmest basis of monarchy and the English constitution. Smith saw the danger from dissenters with more Republican principles, and he doesn't mean Republican Party the way that we think of it today. He, he's thinking of the form of government. And with little affinity to the established religion and manners of England. So in other words, this British colony maybe doesn't look quite so British. Despite the effort to govern society on Christian and more specifically Protestant principles, the first decades of the colonial era, era in most colonies were marked by irregular religious practices, minimal communication between remote settlers, and a population of murderers, thieves, adulterers, and idle persons. An ordinary Anglican American parish stretched between 60 and 100 miles and was often very sparsely populated. In some areas, women accounted for no more than a quarter of the population, and given the relatively small number of conventional households and the chronic shortage of clergymen, religious life was haphazard and irregular for most. Even in Boston, which was more highly populated and dominated by the Congregational Church, one inhabitant complained in 1632 that the fellows which keep hogs all week preach on the Sabbath. So in other words, even the clergymen were bivocational. All right, let's turn to Maryland. Maryland was founded by George Calvert, British aristocrat, first Baron Baltimore, a Catholic convert who sought to provide a religious haven for Catholics persecuted in England. In 1632, Charles I of England, who although he was technically Protestant, he had married a Catholic wife, he granted Lord Baltimore a colonial charter and named the colony after his wife, Queen Mary, Henrietta Maria of France. Unlike the pilgrims and Puritans who rejected Catholicism in their settlements, Lord Baltimore envisioned a colony where people of different religious sects could coexist under the principle of toleration. But religious toleration was not allowed in most colonies. Accordingly, in 1649, the Maryland General Assembly passed an act concerning religion, which enshrined this principle by penalizing anyone who reproached a fellow Marylander based on religious affiliation. 
Nevertheless, religious strife was common in the early years, and Catholics remained a minority, although in greater numbers than in any other English colony. In 1642, a number of Puritans left Virginia for Maryland and founded Providence. Uh, it's now called Annapolis, large city in Maryland, um, and uh, it's a famous city, on the western shore of the upper Chesapeake Bay. Now, when I was researching this topic, I did not know this. I did not know that Puritans had ended up in Maryland. I thought they all stayed up in New England, you know, the present day Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and so forth. But some of them went south. And when they were there, they instituted what they called the plundering time. Now, George Calvert is pictured here in a portrait uh, from the 1600s. And, uh, you know, he looks typical for the, the aristocratic English men of his day, the long curly hair, the elaborate garments, and so forth. Another thing to note about Maryland, like Virginia, its economy was based on tobacco. Uh, and lots of slaves were brought in for that reason. Much conflict between George Calvert, uh, the first, um, he was essentially the first governor of this uh, colony. Much conflict between him and his subjects turned on the question of how far English law should be applied in Maryland as British law supported the Church of England. So all the same religious difficulties that are happening at this very same time in England, think about the English Civil War, you know, the problem with Protestants and, and Catholics, you know, continually going back and forth and who's going to control that country. Are Protestants gonna be out of favor? Is the, Catholic, is the monarch gonna be Catholic? All of those issues now are playing out in the new world. From 1644 to 1646, Puritan settlers in Maryland captured Jesuit priests, imprisoned them, and then sent them back to England, where I'm sure their fate was not good. In 1646, Leonard Calvert, a descendant of the first governor, uh, at that time he had become the colonial governor, returned with troops, recaptured St. Mary's City, the colonial capital, and restored order. Today, of course, the capital of the state of Maryland is Baltimore. Uh, you know, named after First Lord Baltimore. Uh, but at that time they had, you know, different, uh, uh, the map of Maryland looked quite different than it does today in, in that time period. The Maryland House of Delegates passed the Act Concerning Religion in 1649, granting religious liberty to all Trinitarian Christians. So the actual you know, elites in power were Catholic and still trying to press for religious toleration, but the colony is filling up with more and more average people, so to speak, who are Protestant, and many of them Puritan. But the Puritans revolted again in 1650 and seized power in the colonial legislature. So they were able to get Puritan sympathetic um, members elected. The Puritans set up a new government prohibiting both Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism. Mobs burned down all the original Catholic churches of Southern Maryland. 
The Puritan rule lasted until 1658, when the Calvert family and Lord Baltimore regained proprietary control and reenacted the Toleration Act. So in other words, again, about this same time period, there's a civil war going on in England between Protestants and Catholics, and there's this upheaval in the colony of Maryland in the New World between Protestants and Catholics. After England's glorious revolution of 1688, uh, again, that was the English Civil War, they killed a king, uh, but eventually, the, and the Puritans took over, but eventually the monarchy was restored. And then at that point, Maryland outlawed Catholicism. So this early struggle for religious toleration did not end with religious toleration. By 1704, the Maryland General Assembly prohibited Catholics from operating schools, limited the corporate ownership of property to hamper or restrain religious orders from expanding or supporting themselves, and encouraged the conversion of Catholic children. The celebration of the Catholic sacraments was also officially restricted. And this state of affairs lasted until after the American War for Independence from Britain in 1775 to 1783. So in essence, about another generation and a half until there's a major change in this. Now, during that time period, wealthy Catholic planters built chapels on their land to practice their religion in relative secrecy. Okay, and the similar things were going on in Britain. There, were, there was a minority of Catholic nobility who in their grand houses and you know, their estates, they had their own chapels. Oftentimes they would house a Catholic priest in secrecy to conduct the mass in their home and they had hiding places for the priests. You know, if the Protestants were coming to you know, attack them or whatever and, and, you know, expose these Catholics and, you know, take the priests into custody. They had these uh, places in their homes called priest holes and they had tunnels, you know, there were tunnel, a system of tunnels to get the priests out if the Protestants were coming after them. The New England colonies of British America included Connecticut Colony, the colony of Rhode Island, Providence Plantations, Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Plymouth Colony, and the province of New Hampshire, as well as a few smaller short-lived colonies. The New England colonies were part of the 13 colonies and eventually became five of the six states in New England, with Plymouth Colony absorbed into Massachusetts and Maine separating from it. Puritanism was the predominant faith of most of the settlers of these colonies. The Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth Colony had a strict code of civil and criminal laws based on the Bible, and dissent was not permitted. So again, there's no religious toleration, no freedom of religion. If you live in this colony, you must be Puritan and go to the Puritan church and adhere to all the Puritan uh, doctrine. John Wheelwright, a Puritan clergyman, left with his followers to establish a colony in New Hampshire, and then went on to Maine. 
Wheelwright fell afoul of the Massachusetts Bay Colony authorities due to the antinomian controversy. So the word antinomian, uh, we've talked about it somewhat in, uh, in church here. Uh, the, this idea that you can be anti-law, okay, and they, it has Greek roots and it, it essentially means anti-law. So the antinomian controversy, also known as the free grace controversy, was a religious and political conflict in the Massachusetts Bay Colony from about 1636 to 1638. It pitted most of the colony's ministers and magistrates against some adherents of the free grace theology of Puritan minister John Cotton. So again, even though the, the religious authorities are trying to clamp down on this, I, you know, forget about religious freedom, people, just follow the party line. Just do what we tell you to do. Believe what we tell you to believe. People just don't. <laughs> This has been true all throughout human history and will continue. Uh, the most notable free grace advocates, also, also called antinomians, were Anne Hutchinson, her brother-in-law, Reverend John Wheelwright, and Massachusetts Bay Governor Henry Vane. The controversy was a theological debate concerning the covenant of grace and the covenant or verses, the covenant of works, for many Puritans, the evidence of salvation was shown by following God's laws or doing good works. In other words, if you're truly saved, you will do good works. And that's how we will know you are truly saved. And uh, unfortunately, some of this came out really dark. Um, portraits of the individuals involved, uh, John Cotton and John Wheelwright, who were ministers, um, and Anne Hutchinson, the, the picture of Anne Hutchinson, this is a contemporary artist rendering of what they think she looked like. Um, nobody painted her portrait. She wasn't that important socially. To be opposed to doing good works and rely on the grace of God for salvation seemed anti-religious and immoral to many Puritans. And further, some antinomians began to argue that one's spiritual condition had no bearing upon one's outward behavior. The controversy became compounded when some Puritans accused the antinomians of being Anabaptists. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting, you know. Anne Hutchinson also began to argue that the person of the Holy Ghost dwells in a justified or saved person and thus a saved person can know he is saved. So in other words, the evidence of salvation could be something that no other human being could readily observe. Um, so it could be an inward thing, you know, and again, your outward behavior might or might not reflect what had happened internally. Anne Hutchinson was the daughter of a clergyman and she was, she was not uneducated. Um, she was also a midwife, and she was a respected member of her community. During the election of May 1637, the Free Grace Advocates suffered a major setback when John Winthrop, staunch Puritan advocate, defeated Vane, antinomian, in the election for colonial governor. And also some Boston magistrates, uh, 
you know, people who are basically running the city of Boston, uh, were voted out of office for supporting Hutchinson and Wheelwright. Vane returned to England in August of 1637. At a November 1637 court hearing, Wheelwright was sentenced to banishment, hence the move to, to New Hampshire, and Hutchinson was brought to trial. Initially, Hutchinson defended herself well against the prosecution, but on the second day of her hearing, she claimed that she possessed direct personal revelation from God and she prophesied ruin upon the community, the colony. She was charged with contempt and sedition and banished, and her departure brought the controversy to a close. Historians believe that the events of 1636 to 38 are regarded as crucial to an understanding of religion and society in the early colonial history of New England. Hutchinson took Cotton's doctrines concerning the Holy Ghost far beyond his teachings and she saw herself as a mystic participant in the transcendent power of the Almighty. Her theology of direct personal revelation opposed the belief that the Bible was the final authority concerning divine revelation, which was basic to the reform doctrines held by most English settlers at that time. She also adopted Cotton's minority view that works, behavior, and personal growth are not necessarily valid evidence of a person's salvation. She went beyond this, however, and espoused some views that were more radical, devaluing the material world and suggesting that a person can become one with the Holy Spirit. Again, not totally heretical, but for the Puritans of that day, it truly was. She also embraced the heterodox teaching of mortalism, the belief that the soul dies when the body dies and she also saw herself as a prophetess. Finally, Hutchinson was excommunicated and banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. She and her family were allowed to leave, and first they went to Rhode Island. After the death of her husband in 1641, Hutchinson decided to move even further away from the Puritans and went into Dutch territory. Sometime after the summer of 1642, she went to New Netherland, later the, you know, the state of New York, along with seven of her children, a son-in-law, and several servants, 16 total persons. They settled near an ancient landmark not, not far from what became the Hutchinson River in the Bronx, New York. So she has a river named after her. In late August 1643, Hutchinson and all but one of her household were killed by Native Americans. And we're going to kind of finish up today talking about some of the other colonies. Um, Roger Williams, who preached religious toleration, separation of church and state, he's beginning to sound, you know, more familiarly American in his thinking to us, and a complete break with the Church of England, was banished from Massachusetts, you know, another free thinker, uh, and founded uh, the colony of Rhode Island. And Rhode Island became a haven for other religious refugees from the Puritan community. Williams also advocated the idea of liberty of conscience, which for its day was a revolutionary idea. It should be noted that Protestantism has no central authority, as does Roman Catholicism. 
Religious practice across the colonies became diverse, but it did not become diverse within most colonies in this time period. It would be in later periods that religious toleration and true religious freedom would be achieved. Now, for a moment, we want to touch back on the Quakers. We've, uh, I think I've mentioned George Fox when I talked about English dissenters, but that was months ago. So we'll do a quick review. George Fox, founder of the Quakers, a British man, not a nobleman, not well-educated, just a simple uh, British uh, laborer. He founded the Quakers, and those are his dates. Um, and the Qua he began teaching some ideas that were you know, honestly, a lot of people thought he was a nut. Um, he was persecuted severely. The, the group he formed, the Quakers, were persecuted severely. And they deviated quite a bit from Orthodox Protestant ideas, and especially Orthodox Anglican Christianity. Some of the major Quaker ideas Rituals can be safely ignored as long as one has a true spiritual conversion. The qualification for ministry is given by the Holy Spirit, not by ecclesiastical study. So this implies that anyone has the right to minister, assuming the Spirit guides them, and that could include women and children. That's pretty radical for that time period especially. God, according to George Fox, dwelleth in the hearts of his obedient people, Religious experience is not confined to a church building. And the final analysis is the established church is not necessary for Christianity. And you can imagine how hated he was for these ideas. Many Quakers sought refuge in New Jersey, Rhode Island, and especially Pennsylvania, which was owned by William Penn, a rich Quaker. The Quakers kept political control of Pennsylvania until Indian Wars broke out. Initially, the Quakers established very good relationships with the indigenous peoples in the areas that they settled. Um, but as time went on, between white European colonists and Native American people, you know, there was, I mean, it's in essence, who owns the land? This is always the question. But the Quakers themselves were pacifists and they refused to fight and they refused to get involved in these controversies with the Native Americans. Um, and they simply gave up control uh, to groups that were wanting to fight them. And uh, so Quaker influence began to wane in Pennsylvania. And beginning in 1683, many German-speaking immigrants arrived uh, who had come from the Rhine Valley in Europe and Switzerland. And many of these immigrants, of course, were Mennonite and Amish. And we have talked about these groups and how severely persecuted they were in the old world and how, um, again, so many people, the disenfranchised, people who have no resources, people who have nothing left to lose, to undertake the dangerous journey you know, if you, again, I encourage, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Massachusetts to see the Plymouth Colony as it has been rebuilt, and they have a replica of the Mayflower, a ship that really isn't much bigger than this building, made of wood, to step onto a boat like that, you bring, you're bringing your own food and clothing and whatever 
you know, other household items you can manage to uh, bundle up. And to cross the Atlantic is, it's, to me, it's beyond comprehension. But that's how desperate some people were for a better life. Um, so this concludes, uh, again, this is a super, super superficial, <laughs> touching only on a few highlights of this time period uh, in the establishment of these various colonies in uh, what became later the United States. Uh, does anyone have any questions or comments? Deanna. They, they had the beginnings of a form of government that is familiar to us where you have an executive branch, you have a legislative branch, and you have a judicial branch, okay? And they got that from England, because that's how England was. Except in England, the executive was the monarch, king or queen. The legislative branch was parliament, and then they had a court system. Um, so all of that was you know, this way of thinking about civil government was brought to the New World by Anglicans, by Puritans. I mean, even though there were a lot of religious differences, this basic idea of, you know, to have a government, you need an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. That was held in common. I mean, nobody, nobody thought of, um, I mean, in some of the colonies, the, okay, so the governor of the colony was essentially the executive branch. Um, but this, initially the colonies just had a governor. That was it. But these British people with their British ideas are saying, we want representative government. We don't just want a governor telling us what to do all the time. We want to have representation. We want to have people that we can elect who will speak for us so that um, the laws that are passed are, you know, in sympathy with or go along with the way we want our society to be structured. Because a governor, depending on, you know, his, I mean, suppose he wants to impose weird ideas on us, or suppose he wants to be a total despot, you know, a dictator, a tyrant. We're not having that because they had come from centuries of, you know, society, civil government, and, you know, even, even the Church of England had some semblance of, you know, a representative body. And again, in the new world, that took on the form of the vestry. So, you know, you have a pastor, you have bishops, you know, who kind of run things, but you have a vestry. And if the bishop, and that's why they resisted the bishop so much, the idea of having a bishop in the new world. Now, later, the Episcopal Church, you know, some of what I'm describing to you may seem very unfamiliar, but as, as we'll go through when we get to it, the American War for Independence had a profound impact, as you would expect, 
on the Church of England as it was in the New World. It, it had a huge impact on it. And it told, so it, it necessitated, because of, the, because of the political break from Britain, the American War for Independence meant that this, what was an Anglican church, had to become an American church with no allegiance to the, now, of course, you know, the larger Anglican church has its bodies where, you know, churches from different nations are connected, um, you know, and there are heads over those bodies. I mean, to some extent, one of the things I said earlier in this presentation, Protestantism didn't have a monolithic hierarchy the way Roman Catholicism has. It has no pope over the whole thing. Okay, so you've got Anglicans and Episcopalians. They've got a hierarchy. They've got a structure that kind of mimics Rome, but there's a lot of differences. And when what became the United States really broke politically from Britain, the Church of England had to become the Anglican Church in America transforming later into the Episcopal Church. And they, you know, they did have a, you know, they did come up with a system of parishes and bishops and, you know, priests within those parishes and bishops. But it was, it was never, you know, after the war, it was completely separate in its basic governance from England, you know. And it would be in later years that the Anglican, and of course the Anglican church is all over the world. It's everywhere. Because like any church, it's going to proclaim the gospel and establish churches, make converts, and so on. Um, and so today, of course, you have a lot of different, different uh, I guess you could call them communions. And we know in recent years there's been, you know, a s splits and and. You know, five years from now, I can talk about those because it'll take us, you know, years before. I hope not. But to talk about, you know, to talk about current events in the Episcopal Church. But, you know, again, this is, you know, centuries later. But the Ameri I would say the American War for Independence had a profound impact on the Anglican Church in America and totally transformed it. And it, it it looked very different after, you know, and it, it really was, you know, because again, in England, you've got this wedding of church and state. If you're breaking free from the British government, then your church can't be tied into that. It, you know, it has to be its own whole new church. Um, and it would be in later generations that rapprochement, you know, coming together again in terms of not in terms of governance, but communion. That would be left to later generations. Yeah, any other questions? Kind of belabored that point, but. All right, well, till next time. Thanks for your attention. <laughs>